0: Touch them all, Joe! (laughs) Lindsey Crombie, the Golden Girl!
1: Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. For today's episode, I am speaking with Kevin Newman. Many of you hopefully know Kevin from his time as an anchor on global news here in Canada, maybe on CTV as well. Kevin has had such a spectacular career. He was in the United States earlier in his career working on Good Morning America and ABC, but beyond the television personality that comes into our living room with Kevin, he has had such an amazing experience behind the scenes, creativity, startups. There's a whole part of Kevin that many people really don't know, and that's what we got to explore on the Backstage Project podcast. Kevin! Kevin! You know, you're one of the most recognizable figures for generations of Canadians, you know, including my. <laughs> yes, own. I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think recognizable and figure is are the operative words there instead of because <laughs> I'm getting there too myself. Yeah. Now, your, your TV career and your various side hustles—they've been profiled. They've been profiled through media outlets, through blogs, through podcasts. Like, there's a lot that we can learn about Kevin Newman. But for our conversation today. We're going to expose, we're going to try to expose you know, that creator in you, that guy who seems kind of uncomfortable with being content, if I, if I can say that. Yeah, so, that's fair. So Kevin, you know, welcome uh, to the Backstage Project podcast. Thanks, Mark. Well, listen, getting right into it, I remember back uh, to when we initially met, it was in 2012. You know, I had just joined Bell Media coming out of an Olympic project, which was kind of part of Bell Media, but a Skunk project. I believe you were very recent at Bell Media as well, and what took shape for both of us, though very differently, you know, I, was all around digital. You know, my part was obviously around sports; your part, obviously, around news. And when we talk about you know today about some of that that overlap in time that we spent there at Bell Media, what really struck me was how both of us achieved kind of even before those roles, we, we achieved kind of the pinnacle in our own respective kind of career trajectories Um, at least when I was looking back on it that that's how I saw it and I mean outside of kind of being promoted to being the president of Bell Media which hasn't happened for either of us just yet (laughs) and won't (laughs) (laughs) well if you'll allow me I mean I want to kind of paint us with kind of the same brush that you know at several points in our in our careers we've left opportunities on a high now opportunities that you know to many they, they would think that like you couldn't do any any better than that and where we've left to are our new adventures that were generally uncertain that maybe some of them had a little more certainty than others but the path was not clear so looking back on on the kind of the story of your career and that journey that's driven your need for change I really want to get at the heart of that desire that I believe you have uh, to be a startup and to do a startup again now, as you enter this next chapter in, in your career.
0: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree with with really anything that you've said there. Um, I think when I look back, I'm at my happiest in creation, and I'm at my most antsy in a maintenance mode. And in, in that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm a startup guy. Um, there are. Uh, you know, how many stories do we have of the people that, you know, uh, are part of a startup culture, aren't the ones to maintain that culture or to institutionalize it or to help it even move beyond that startup phase into, into something that's sustainable. So I always seem to have uh, enjoyed the challenge of, um, in some cases, taking something brand new, in other cases, taking legacy projects and trying to make them a little bit newer and then once I felt um, that I had achieved all that, that could be achieved, maybe not that can be achieved, but could be achieved in my mind, um, I looked around for um, who, who's around to take this to a, a level of institution um, that isn't just part of my DNA. So I did that at um, Global National, uh, which was a startup from scratch um, I took question period, Good Morning America to a lesser extent, um, W5 and tried not to screw around too much with what was working, but try to freshen it up with a little bit of new thinking that inevitably usually meant digital. I did a show Kevin Newman live, which was a startup and, and, um, you know, as with all startups, some of them work, some of them don't, um, some of them are given patience. Some of them aren't. But um, in, in, in looking back on my career, because that's pretty much my perspective right now, um, for some reason, when things got um, polit- too overly political, when things got, um, you know, when when I didn't feel that wind in my back of creation, I, I tended to lose interest really quickly. You know, that's something that sounds a lot like the way my, my outlook has been. You've
1: absolutely had... You know, more more prominent uh, roles than I've been able to have, at least in the eye of the public. And I don't think we need to do like an Ipsos Reid poll um, with, with Canadians uh, to get them to tell us you know, how they know Kevin Newman. I, I'm pretty sure that that run, that amazing run that you had on Global National is where we all got to know you. Um, I'd like to say it was on the Good Morning America, but when you were on Good Morning America, cable distribution was a little different than it is today.
0: Yeah. And it didn't last very long either. It was a, uh, I was on that show for three years, first as the newsreader and then the host, but uh, that was my encounter with, um, you know, so much institutional, um, heavy intervention in a concept that, um, you know, you learn from your mistakes always. So when I looked for whatever the next opportunity would be, it would be the opposite of that. And that turned out to be Global National, which was At the time, Global didn't have a third national newscast. They wanted somebody to create it. They didn't know really what it was. They weren't very good at news. So, you know, I I found that every time I have one of those, you know, hard experiences for me, I tend to have gone, okay, now I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to make sure when I walk in the door that they actually want me for the stuff that I think I have to bring. And then, you know, over time, and it, you know, the ivy grows and everything else happens. But, um, But if I look back, it's been... It's been take on something big and institutional, do a startup. Take a big and institutional, do a startup. And I'd sort of weave back and forth and, you know, try to not get my ass fired. Well, listen, I, I think uh, you've been guilty and I know I've been guilty of, of doing what we think is
1: is the job that needs to be done and and having the confidence in our abilities and the people that we're working for to have them keep us in check if they don't think it's what it's what we're doing. When I look at your your career over the last say Twenty years, you know, whether it was global or Bell Media with W five in question period, and of course you were you were on the national desk many times on CTV, uh, but absolutely focused on some other some other parts of the business. When I see you on television, you know, I've always been curious about the things that you say to the audience and how it's being researched and compiled vers- by yourself versus perhaps what other journalists and writers are doing behind the scenes. And I know I know it's a team game, so. I'm, I'm never assuming that you're, you're the current multi-platform journalist that is on YouTube as an influencer, you know, trying to be all things. So let's, let's not paint you with that brush just yet, unless you want me to paint you that way. But w- what I'm really looking at is you know, my own perspective. So during my time with you know, CTV, working on the Olympics, I got to spend a couple sessions on set. Um, with uh, Brian Williams, the Canadian Brian Williams, for anyone who <laughs> might be listening to this uh, to this podcast. So this is when he was uh, he was anchoring the prime primetime during the Vancouver Olympics, and so I was on set with him. And he basically there was a camera person or two, there was Brian's trusted writer, and there was a researcher. And what I really recall with Brian, and if we think about the commercial break uh, that he was coming out of, or perhaps it was some big event. Um, that they were coming out of and going back um, to the anchor position on on the on the national broadcast. I recall the attention to detail and preparation that Brian put into every opening um, when he was coming back from break. You know, whether it was teleprompter or not, really didn't matter. He was still so focused on on perfection, and and that could have been 15 million people, quite honestly, who Brian had to greet back from commercial, depending on when he was on air during the Olympics. So I wanted to focus on you. And, you know, what it's like for you you know, when there's an audience, let's say a huge audience, uh, you know, waiting for you to come back from commercial, you know, whether that again was on the nightly news, or maybe it's when you were on W5 or question period where we know that is a more engaged and curious audience for you. You know, how much of that preparation falls on you or how much micromanaging do you do of the team versus them contributing and supporting you?
0: That's an interesting question because, um, I am I'm Mr. Prep, um, and um, you know there may be people listening to this podcast who have worked for me who, who thought that I was pretty hard assed on that stuff, um, and I I always felt like I was the um, the questioner of last resort. So when something came to me, I felt it. Um, I it wasn't that I doubted that my team hadn't done its work, but if if I I I, I had the hubris. To think, well, if I have questions left by this, then probably the viewer might too, or some viewers might. And I just need to personally be satisfied that all the right questions have been answered. And, and that's you know that, that's hard on people. That's hard on writers. It can make people feel like, you know what, you don't trust me? But it was just about me knowing that as soon as it came out of my mouth, there was no taking it back. And um, it's live television. I've, and, and there are lawyers doing transcripts. And there are people watching who can be harmed by what I say. And there are others who can be um, use my words and twist them for whatever political ends there are. And at the end of the day, they are my words because they're associated with me, even if many of them are written by other people. So um, and, and I saw this when I worked with Peter Jennings at, at ABC in New York, too. It was just it was a constant, constant questioning, checking, Um, uh, context right uh, correct word stuff and because it's live television it's often happening under incredible stress um, and deadline stress so you know it's not and I remember (laughs) I remember sitting in front of Peter and having like a a pit in my stomach every time he would give me the cross-examination because if I wasn't ready for it, it I was naked and I felt terrible and he got angry and 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 then I found myself sometimes in that same position uh, with other people. And, um, and you know, it's sort of like, you know, growing up, you only really understand your parents when you're in their position. And I sort of felt that way about Jennings. It was like, oh, I understand more what he was doing now. It wasn't personal. And I, I tried not to make it personal, but, you know, maybe others took it that way. Um, so I, I that moment of the red light coming on or or whatever, is uh, such an intense moment of responsibility for whoever is speaking in that moment that um, you you need to take it super seriously because the repercussions of not doing that, in my view, are enormous. I mean, at least at the national level, like one thing I always kept in mind was that there were entire businesses built around taking the transcripts of what came out of my mouth and putting it on the desk of every CEO that we reported on every politician that we talked about so that if they found holes, they'd be on the phone real fast. Um, So I, it, it was, it was a lot. It was hard. I mean, now that I'm retired, I, I think back of the stress of that Um, I didn't and exhilaration at the same time, but um, yeah, it's uh, doing that as long as I did it, you know, it, 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 it was hard and it was important to be done, but you, it does take a physical uh, and an emotional toll over time. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, and those
1: moments, I mean, that's why we're doing this, this podcast is those stories might not be the first story, the first question that anyone asks you, but that's part of your history. That part, that's part of what makes you, you, as you were talking there, I was just thinking about uh, a new Netflix, uh, the new Netflix show that came out called The Last Dance, uh, which for those who aren't I'm,
0: aware. Oh, it's amazing, but I haven't seen it yet. I've got everyone telling me I was going to watch it tonight. No, it's okay. It's
1: uh, it's one of these things where we know how it ends.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh,
1: but in particular, when you get to it, I don't want to ruin anything, but uh, in, the <laughs> episode, in the second episode, um, Scotty Pippen gets injured, by the way. <laughs> everyone, Yeah, <knows> yeah. Apparently <laughs> I
0: mean? that injured, happened.
1: And Scotty doesn't start the... Uh, I guess it's the the what would be the sixth championship season for for the Bulls. Scotty doesn't start that season, and the, and the and the team doesn't start off well. And the access that the the cameras had to the Bulls that year. And again, we don't even that was twenty some odd years ago. We're only finding out now about all this access. This is law, This is you know well before the twenty four sevens that you know HBO had done, like with the NHL and others. Amazing. So the, the footage that they show of the Bulls practices. This is without Scotty. And the way that Michael Jordan, you know, conducted that team, got into everybody's business. Now, a little different um, than maybe some of your situations where, you know, you're the Michael Jordan and no one sees the supporting cast. But in other cases, like you're referencing, where you're supporting, you know, Peter Jennings, as you just mentioned, absolutely, you know, it is a team. So it's amazing to watch when when you do watch it, just to see how much responsibility he took day in, day out. Uh, to make that team uh, what it ended up becoming. Sorry, I had to get the sports reference in there to. <laughs> <place.
0: laughs> no, it's a, it's a good one because you know um, I, I gravitate towards team events. I mean, I was never a team sports kid, um, but I found my team sports in, in in the creation of programming and and in the tech world. I mean it's it's if anyone imagines like um, you know anybody succeeds without figuring out how to motivate a team, then they're sadly mistaken.
1: You know, I uh, have always been a big fan of the team concept. It was always about surrounding myself with people that at least um, had a similar passion and focus. Uh, but generally, uh, each had their own specific uh, skill sets and personality traits to, uh, to fit oh, in yeah. together as a group. So speaking about a group, I remember back in 2012, um, this meeting that you and I were both at. We're called into a room, and and you probably remember this room. There's a glorious, glorious boardroom on the fifth floor of uh, Bell Media's head office in Toronto at 299 Queen Street West. And what I distinctly remember is uh, it was such a glorious room and a, a monitor bigger than anyone could possibly have imagined they would make, like, television monitors. But if you looked at the room from the outside, there was this CP24 truck, which was just erected right out from the building. I'm not sure if it's still there now. Oh, it is. But, yep. Oh, it is still there now. Well, it was an amazing sight to see from the outside. Again, perspective is everything. But you know, when we were there together, there was a, it was brand new Bell Media. There was brand new digital leadership. Many of these executives had come from Bell Canada, generally on the wireline side of the business. I'm not entirely sure how they got into the media business, but those were the people that you and I had to deal with. And so they got dropped into the media into Bell Media. I'm assuming to fix what was perceived as broken because that's what we, that's what we were being told at the time, you know, without Bell buying CTV, globe media, holistically, you know, the business would have been bankrupt. This is what, this is what we heard at the mm-hmm. time, at the time, like it, it was broken. So if I think back to those days and we could touch on the media business as well, but this question is a little different, but if we touch on those days, there was that notion of citizen journalism. And I, I remember distinctly a vision that that you painted around CTV News being the place where if you see it, you should tell us and share it, and then we'll let we'll let everyone else know about it. Now I think I, I'm going to fast forward like you know to today and just focusing at least on Toronto. You know, there's an Instagram account called Six Buzz TV, and I'm not yeah. sure if you've heard of it or not. Yeah, it's I know, yeah, I follow it. You, yeah. you know, they've they've actually uh, they've cornered that entire market. Um, so let's not talk about exactly how that happened. But I would like to uh, go back to those days, you know, 2010, well, actually 2012, maybe 13, 14, when very much that um, digital news evangelist role and title that, that I know we all look to you as that beacon, when you had that title, you know, talk to us about how the broadcast side of the world actually was looking at digital. And then if you can, you know, just kind of compare it in general. Uh, to today and then what what has evolved?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there was a collision at that time between the you know the people who are content creators and said, you know, if we make it um, and if it's good and if it's reliable and trustworthy, people will come and we will make money eventually. And then I think the very much at the time and in, internally a bell and maybe to today I don't know, but um, it was um, how does it make money immediately. And I could never answer that question <laughs> because I didn't think it was possible. I don't think you could launch on a product on digital, which is so much word of mouth, which has such a, you know, it's not like you tune in, it has to earn its place in a, in, in in the ecosphere that um, it just wasn't possible. And so when Bell brought what is, you know, a typical product-driven idea into a largely creative enterprise it was frustrating for them uh, because you know they'd look at at everybody and everybody would say how does it make money well it doesn't and then the answer would be then why would they do it why do it because we're here to frankly you know make money and so I think that tension that 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 sort of that sort of held bell back for a while and it was frustrating in in the news division because you know the squeeze was particularly hard in the news division on a bottom line because it was very staff heavy. It wasn't like, you know, you, um, you guys at TSN that, that had the catering still uh, we, we lost catering a decade ago. Right. And so they were always kind of squeezing the stuff really, really hard. So for the management at news, you know, it was hard to say, I'm going to, I'm going to take something, which is still performing well, which has a vast audience, which is number one, which makes the most money for our division by far, and I'm going to give you a little bit of money over here to, um, of money that I don't really have to sustain the functioning of my business and give it to you over there. So that, that was hard. But the, the, the hardest thing that we encountered that we did solve um, was that um, there was no monetization of uh, advertising for news at all. Basically, news would give this over to a platform, the platform would aggregate it, the platform would get the advertising revenue, and none of it made it back to news. So the argument that I would have to make to my bo- bosses was, well, could we you know, get some money to do something that you're never going to see any money from? And that was impossible, naturally, because it was counterintuitive. So what we needed to do and what we did do eventually is we broke off the news part of the CTV platform digitally and we said there's now a ctv news business and there is now a ctv entertainment business and um that was really hard to do because it turns out we learned that most of the revenue on that platform was coming from the news side so the guy who had the platform knew that if you cut off news his revenue was going to go down so you get into all these you know self-interested moments but eventually he saw that you know why is this just one business? Why don't we make it three, right? Let's have a TSM platform. Let's have a news platform. Let's have an entertainment platform and let's sort of echo what we do in conventional. And as soon as that happened and the news products started to create a certain amount of uh, traction that they could see something in a column that said revenue, which they had not seen before, then that began to open up the window. And uh, you know, 10 years later, almost now that CTV news platform is a, Growing focus of, of profitability, of views of whatever, but it was it was baked inside a structure that didn't give it a chance to survive.
1: Now, it's amazing to hear you're going to recount the news
0: side, um, and and
1: I still do keep in touch with the Stephanie Wilson Chapin. If you remember her from your time there, yeah, I, I do too. And um, and it sounds like they're turning a corner. It looks like you know this. Uh, COVID nineteen situation has has caused that, and and what I mean by that is, what what Kevin has just described for people who are more product focused and work in agile, you know, that is not the world um, that we were in at the time, anyway. From Bell Media, that word product that Kevin used, what product meant, is that you made a lot of presentations, if people like the sound of it, because they perhaps saw a path toward revenue, like Kevin just articulated. Then you wrote a lot of documents, like functional requirements and wireframes, and, and then eventually maybe you had something. And the sad truth of it, and I'm, I'll be, I'm thinking about other products, not not like you know CTV News a, a website initiative, but other products. If they didn't succeed, um, and they just got swept under the rug, and uh, you know, that was some capital that they'd have to change the amortization schedule around. It was just a completely different mentality than what we're kind of used to today around the startup culture which is about experimentation and about learning and about being user centered uh, and and a word that I don't know if I use it that much on on the the backstage project podcast but absolutely a word that I use kind of in my day job is is the echo chamber and we were all guilty and wh- whether we were the whether we were different and I believe you and I were different um, but we were we were in the echo chamber and To stay in the echo chamber we had to say some of the right things so we weren't kicked out yeah that's
0: just that's just corporate politics isn't it
1: yeah no that's exactly it exactly
0: but it was good
1: to hear stephanie say that they are starting to experiment and work quicker and everything doesn't have to be you know a grand slam home run they can have you know a pop out to the warning track
0: yeah no and you know and and it's paid off for them i mean um you, uh, I. When I left there, I mean, Stephanie and I stayed stayed in touch and, uh, you know, I'd feed her ideas I had, which were not terribly original, but, um, you know, um, they, they made it. And, and they made it because, you know, she was probably better at, 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 at maneuvering in that world than I was. And it was only for me. I mean, like the digital conversion at the time of CTV News was considered a part-time job. And I also did question period at the same time. So if you look now at the amount of people that are dedicated um, at every news division to the creation of uh, digital first content, um, you know, that makes me kind of proud. No, that's good. I think that's for, for any of us who put such passion and
1: dedication into things, even though we might have birthed the baby or seeded the baby, the, the fact that the, uh, that, that the baby is growing and evolving. I mean, these are these are the things that we look back on to say, at the time yeah we were pulling our hair out when we had hair but
0: um yeah. yeah it's true and like nobody i mean i think ultimately at the end of the day that's 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 all you can hope for like i can point to a couple of things that i know i created that are now considered legacy global national is one of them some of my early input at ctv you know some of the refreshing of w5 and i'm the only one who really cares frankly but isn't that always the case? Like, do you, can you pass the shave test in the morning when you look at yourself? Well, we're not. Neither of us are doing shaving as much lately. With it's a good thing ears. it's a podcast. Yeah, it's a good thing it's a podcast. <laughs> but, um, but you know, can you look back and can you say um, you left a footprint that was uh, more than just fleeting? Um, I'm I'm proud to say I I, I did. No, and I, I totally believe you did.
1: As you reference names like Stephanie and her name is called, bit here. You know, the fact that you still have some kind of connection to her, as I do with many people at at TSN, I mean, that's really the legacy, those relationships and the trust that you've formed, even if you're not buddy-buddy anymore, because time, place, and circumstance have just changed.
0: Yeah, but you care about the creation, and you care about the people that are taking care of some of what you created and, and have taken it farther than you ever could, because you have to know that, and I think this is true for any innovator or any businessman or any entrepreneur, you have to have a sense of when your impact uh, is waning. I mean, you referenced at the top of the podcast, how I seem to move around. I seem to be antsy, but it's at that moment where I think um, I'm staying here too long. I'm now in the way of what this needs to become. And that's usually when I move. That's one of the factors that I use when I decide, you know, whether or not to do something else. Me too. Me too.
1: I, I want to switch. Um, I want to switch back to Kevin Newman, the, the broadcaster, the anchor for a moment and and I'll just speak for myself, you know, so it doesn't matter if you're coming to me through like my cable box or through my phone. When I say you, I mean like you speaking on, on a video, we'll keep it really simple to, uh, to set this up um, or even on the computer right now through zoom. I mean, I believe everything that you say to me.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I got this property. Yeah.
1: <laughs> even that. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's something that even, you, you know, you covered on your podcast, which you did last fall called attention control, or it's, you know, research and experiences that you've accumulated along the way. So I know I know you've dealt a lot in this topic that we're about to discuss. Can you paint the picture for us about just how terrifying the world is right now when it comes to misinformation? And I'd like you to help a little bit, if you can, to suggest what we can do to stop it, this
0: misinformation age. I don't think we can. I think it's getting more and more sophisticated and more intentionally misleading for all kinds of factors. That um, you know, I, I I I hesitate to tell anybody to sort of turn it off because I earn my living doing it. But get a get a smaller diet of it. I, I was I spent forty years developing a skill of trying to figure out what's bullshit, what's truth, what's likely to be true because you never know full truth. And even I get caught. <laughs> there was this guy, Bo from like uh, with a southern accent, talking incredibly reasonably, I thought, about conspiracy theories and, you know, why people seem to be so drawn to them and how surprising it is when, you know, a buddy that you you know have known pretty well all your life, you see him drifting towards what you consider to be conspiratorial thought. And how it's like invasion of the body snatchers people are being taken away to this conspiracy planet. And, and I thought this guy's really great, man. He's like, he's looked like a working man. He's, he's in his work shed. He's, uh, he's got a good ball cap and whatever, Bo. And then I did what I, any good reporter should do. And I did a little background check. Well, it turned out this guy wasn't might've been a character that his name isn't Bo. He's got another name. Um, and it's another name and his image that shows up on, libertarian anarchist websites and um without an accent uh which sounded all all authentic to me and i thought damn i i even i was about to share something that i that i thought was bang on but but his intent in sharing that misinformation was to basically you know fuck shit up you know he just he's an anarchist he just he wants some you know libtard guy to go this is my boy because he doesn't sound like a libtard and then he, he has influence. And, um, you know, if, if I'm right, if that's his motive, I mean, who knows? But to me, it was just another sign that how sophisticated people, smart people, not dumb people, smart people, have figured out this whole audience communication opinion circle and are able to play in it in a way when you and I were in our 20s, um, only we got to play in And one thing that I'm always telling my friends is when we played in there, uh, there were consequences for getting shit wrong. There were lawyers. There were bosses. There were competitors who knew you were wrong. This new information ecosystem, because it exists digitally, largely, who do you sue? Where do you sue? It exists everywhere in the world. You can't, you know, I can't march into uh, Bowmanville, Ontario and say I've been libeled by a guy on YouTube and the laws of Ontario matter it because he was never in Ontario. The liability, you know, the harm didn't happen in a physical place. It happened, you know, on the the cloud. And so when I say that, I say, just realize that, yeah, I know everyone is, you know, media lies, media doesn't like to do this kind of, you know, can't trust the media. But if you can't trust the media, you can trust my, my self-interest. And if I had made a mistake, if I had lied, if I had misrepresented the context, I would have lost my livelihood. I would have had my ass sued into oblivion. So, you know, my self-interest was not to do those things because there were lots of people lined up waiting for me to do it. So if nothing else, trust the media because there are very real consequences to them making mistakes and almost no consequences, unless you're overtly racist, of saying something on YouTube or any other platform because it doesn't exist anywhere, and it's continued opinion, considered opinion. Thank you for your perspective on that. I know that you could probably speak for hours on the
1: subject, and we're not gonna deal with, you know, deep fakes and the like, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, know you, I know you have all that knowledge as well, but where I wanted to take this was you know, Facebook, we know for many years now has come under scrutiny as being the distributor of this content, well-documented. They've had a bunch of initiatives, I mean, varying degrees of success. Um, I don't believe they've come to Canada Recently, but earlier this year, there was like an official news source, whatever it is, the Wall Street Journal, or if it was in Canada, I'm assuming it would be the Globe and Mail or CTV News, for example. Facebook would work with them to distribute the content, and it would be part of a basically credible news source division. So we we know they're doing things. It is very challenging for them because even if that is successful, as consumers, we have to weigh our options of how we get it. Do we want to be on Facebook? And they're doing well enough without any of our help. But still, there's all these options that are available to us. But when we think about the content that still continues to go into those platforms, and we've heard about the rising costs. If we've studied Facebook from a financial point of view, we've seen that as their revenue rose kind of in in parallel proportion, uh, the costs have rose as well. So there is a cost. And those costs are generally around, forget about the technology, which they're amazing at, but it's also around moderators. They have all these moderators. I don't know what the number is at now.
0: But it's they, they don't they don't have many moderators. They have they have hired companies um, to do some moderation, but um, those companies have discovered that it's incredibly expensive and it's a minefield to be a moderator on what's true and what's not. They've they've hired people to make journalistic decisions. If you look at the last federal election in Canada, and this is a fact, uh, they had gone in with the uh, with a news organization to try to fact check what was being told in the federal campaigns. That news organization was Agence France-Presse, which is a French news agency, and they had one guy uh, in Quebec who could speak both French and English, who had to monitor the entire Canadian media ecosystem and try to red flag when, when things were not true. So their actual investment in that in Canada is all I can speak for has been minimal.
1: Well, I, I'm glad you're highlighting that example because breaking news in the last 24 hours, the source is the Washington Post, if I had to pick one, um, because of claims of PTSD, uh, the moderators have won a class action
0: lawsuit against Facebook. I have no doubt. Um, and I know that others have, um, others have, have uh, raised that as well, that when you have to look at the world's shit online, Uh, you have an obligation as a, you know, as an organization to understand the impact that that has. And that's not just Facebook, that's many news organizations as well. If you ask around a question to ask, some have it, some don't. But, you know, the media is very quick to look at other organizations, first responders, medical professionals and say, aha, how are you dealing with post-traumatic stress? And they don't have any stuff for their own systems. And, uh, and I guess, I guess, as you say, you know, on the on the question of moderation um, I guess the courts are now saying no there's there, there's an obligation from companies to take care of the mental health of people that you're asking to sift through the ugliest parts of the world and of the internet
1: yeah same reason neither you or I became a you know an adjuster for a car insurance company correct <laughs> so kind of rounding out the story of, of Kevin at least over the last 20 years this new man or Newman media you know it's something that uh, is there on your LinkedIn it's kind of where you work right now, but you started that back, you know, while you were still at Global. And I'm just kind of curious, uh, you know, comparing it to again myself and some of the decisions I've made over the course of my career. I'm kind of curious, you know, what prompted you to start it, kind of when you did. Uh, you know, when I would say you were, you know, at the peak of your rise, at least through your global your global days, and just share with us as you look at that, what you've done with with that part of your, your career. And, and the kind of pride that you felt in you know, running your own thing, calling your own shots, developing your own partnerships versus you know, all of the pride and, um, and respect that we all have for you for everything you've done working for the big networks.
0: Well, I mean, as you know, Mark, you know, the, um, the big platforms are wonderful in many ways. You have the resources. You've got a lot of bright minds that come across it. But sometimes they're not an expression of, of what you want to do enough. So I, I created something on the side, basically, that I could have a little more creative input over and could express what more personally what my interests were in um, in conversations versus working for a broadcaster where you really have to be concerned with getting the biggest audience that you possibly can. So, you know, I, I might not have been able to do it if I hadn't been successful at Global National. But at one point, you know, they wanted to keep me and um, and they were pretty desperate to keep me. And um, and I said, okay, then, you know, help me germinate this thing off the side so that I can do more long-term journalism, because I was just doing the daily newscast at that time. And so they did. And so it was always my kind of playground. When I've talked to entrepreneurs and when I talk to um, startup guys, it's easy to throw everything you have into the thing that you're building. But, you know, when you get to a level of success where it's not taking everything try doing something for yourself on the side that is just about your creative instincts. That is more about your creative instincts as opposed to what the team or the group or the audience or the users or the, you know, everybody else wants out of you. And so I I found that a good way to balance my career um, and my life and, and, and also to, um, you know, have some surprising things about you. So if you looked at my LinkedIn account, you know, it's all pretty traditional, except for that Shakespeare app that I that I built with uh, a couple of friends, where we thought, oh, we need a Cole's notes for the you know the 2010s at the time. What, what if we took Shakespeare, which had no kind of copyright proprietorship over it, and we made an iPad app over the guy like me in grade 12 who hadn't actually read the Shakespeare book but needed to pass the exam. So that was the market. And so you look at that and you go like, what's he, what's he doing that over there for? And you go, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of why I did it. Cause I wanted to be, I, I need, I wanted to go see about something that I knew nothing about without the consequences of uh, jeopardizing audience, jeopardizing other people's livelihoods and all the rest of that.
1: No, and that's great advice for everyone. I mean, as once you get to that point in your life or your career where you need that, that creative freedom and passion that maybe you're not finding. I mean, that's, uh, that's something I say when, when I'm, when I'm teaching, it's when I say to my students and kind of my wrap up lecture at the, at the end of the semester. Well, speaking of kind of about wrap up, I mean, we have a few questions that we're just asking every, every guest on, on the backstage cool. podcast. So we're just going to run them through. you. It is not rapid fire. So you can, you can speak at length if it strikes a chord, but, uh, but here we go. All right. And I, I, this is a very tough question for you, I can imagine, uh, but I'll get it out there and we'll see what Yeah, go for it. Go for it. So Give me. if you had to pick one, just one moment in your career as being most memorable, what, what would it be?
0: Um, after I had not done well at Good Morning America, my very last show, I had to face the audience and say goodbye, knowing that, you know, um, it hadn't worked out. And I had the family there for my last show because I know I needed support. And then I said, I, I want to get a haircut, a really short haircut. And people thought, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you think of that? But what that haircut represented to me was I was, from that point forward, I was gonna take much more control creatively over what I was gonna be involved in. There was so much conversation about the length of my hair on Good Morning America, they did focus groups on it. And I thought, I am never allowing myself to be in that position again. My hair will be short. Uh, because that's the way I want it to be, and that is more authentic to me, and not about what a committee thinks about me. And so that haircut sort of set me up for the and the and, and the failure um, set me up for the rest of my career. Wow,
1: thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, the the fact that you mentioned haircut, um, there's a in at least at the Schulich School of Business in Toronto in one of the introductory. MBA classes, uh, around critical thinking. They talk about an approach to change called the 15% approach to change. And I remember my president, my project, my presentation was about getting a haircut. Oh, really? You change your hair that 15%, uh, and that affects a hundred percent of someone's viewpoint of you. Yeah. Very this deep. True. Very it's deep. true. I know. Who knew? <laughs> okay. Maybe,
0: maybe they wrote the book after, uh, after you I doubt it it was just it was just instinctive man I just said no I'm I am, this is me I'm, no. from what from now on I'm just gonna fall on, on my sword if, if, if that's not good enough no so thank you for that that nugget there
1: and and this one I'm sure you get a lot Kevin so um you know, just tell us kind of what you think off the cuff you know, what advice do you have for someone who when I say wants to work in the space I mean let's say they want to be either investigative journalist or, or research-based journalists, not necessarily, you know, the anchor that that you were for yep. uh, the throes of your career, but that 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 real ju- broadcast journalist that, that that we know you're you know, in this country in, in a handful of just a few who are who have achieved as much success as you as you have.
0: Um, travel. Um, if you're not curious about people and their cultures and how they live, um, then you're just you're not going to have longevity if, if the reason you're in it is because it's kind of a cool profession and you get to be on TV and whatever. But I always, um, I always ask sort of, um, have you traveled? Have you had the means to travel? Cause some people don't. And why do you travel? And what, have, what have you learned about yourself through travel? And that tells me a lot about how, when you walk into someone's house, um, who's, you know, dirt poor or a meth addict or. Or, or whatever that you are going there from a, a point of view of not looking uh, at them from ju- from a point of judgment from, but from a point of curiosity and compassion and I think that's the kind of stuff that you learn from traveling. Thank you for that And then finally our, our last question for
1: you today if you look back at the beginning of your career and you just kind of describe what that might look like for someone you know, what do you wish uh, you knew then
0: that um, that you know now hmm. That's a hard question. There's so much. Um, Well, I guess for anybody, it's that you probably know more than you think you know. So much of the early stage of my career was suffering with the imposter syndrome. Like, what right do I have to be standing next to a politician? Why do I think that I have, you know, I just didn't allow myself to think that I was good enough to be doing the kinds of things and being with the kind of people that I was with. But the, the, the truth is you're not there to be as good as Bono, you're there to be the guy who you know grew up in Mississauga, middle class, worked at McDonald's, painted houses, and to ask the kind of question that your life experience has given you because it's probably closer to the, what the audience and what the viewers and what the readers are experiencing. So I had to get around the fact that I was seeing extraordinary things, being in extraordinary places with extraordinary people and tell myself, well, yeah, you're not that extraordinary, but that's kind of why you're there.
1: Well, wow. thank you for sharing. That's a great piece and a great way to kind of close out our chat today. I couldn't thank you more for taking the time. I know we have time today, but still, I'm sure yep. that there are demands on your time. Uh, no,
0: I'm trying to think what that demand <laughs> would be. Maybe I'll get another haircut.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully uh, you have a flowbie or something like it at home, so it's kind of easy to do. I don't personally have that problem. Uh, <laughs> neither do I. This, this has been great. It's been great catching up. Yeah, nice you, to see
0: you too, Mark. It's been great. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at